0: Hello, proles good day good sir how are we doing today you know
1: i'm doing all right uh just living my best life over here everything is good not sore i'm a little sore and a little horse but that's okay
0: are you sore because you're a horse
1: uh yes horse with an a horse you know what i just i can't with you today (laughs) i haven't had any coffee this is it's you know I was going to say I was doing fine, but now I'm not doing fine. I feel terrible. Everything's terrible now.
0: Good. Good. I want it to be terrible.
1: Awesome. So that perfectly sets the tone for our story today. What are we talking about?
0: So today we're talking about a really fun and exciting story. I know a lot of our audience is familiar with the Jerusalem artichoke, also known as the sunchoke, but it actually had a really interesting like coming of age story in the recent past. So we're going to talk about sunchokes.
1: All right, so an artichoke. I know what an artichoke is. What makes it Jerusalem? Because it was it was mentioned. Is this the one that was mentioned in the Bible or whatever?
0: So we're gonna talk about why it's called the Jerusalem artichoke. I'm not sure if it's gonna be in this episode. This is a four part series. It's just a really fun, interesting story that I'm very excited to uh, to talk about. So the Jerusalem artichoke is actually a member of the sunflower family. It's a perennial root crop that, well, primarily grown for its root crop. But as we'll see, there's a whole bunch of things that it can kind of do. And people got really excited about what its potential is. For folks that are not familiar with it, it is a a native crop to North America, primarily the the northeastern part of North America. And um, it was cultivated and um, managed and stewarded by indigenous people across the continent. If you're familiar with it, great because it's this is going to be a really fun story. But basically what's unique about the the sunchoke is that these massive tubers basically like potatoes that they grow are full of inulin which causes a lot of gas if not cooked down into the the sugars that make it up. So anyways, the sunchoke is just like a vehicle you could say for like this really unique star that we're talking about which is American energy farming systems which is kind of like the Enron of sunchokes. And we'll probably call it AEFS just to make it short instead of saying American Energy Farming Systems a million times.
1: Yeah, and that's the one thing that I do appreciate is an accurate acronym.
0: Yes, Elliot loves his acronyms, as we have so thoroughly pointed out in this podcast. So, like I said, indigenous people had man- or grown Jerusalem artichokes for a number of years. In 1605, French explorer Samuel de Chaplain because my French is beautiful, I'm gonna go with that. Reported that the um, indigenous people of Cape Cod ate Jerusalem artichokes. Soon after North America was colonized, the plant was taken to France. There, it became a relatively popular food for humans and animals, especially pigs. Raw or cooked, the flavor of the tuber can actually be really enjoyable. But like I said, if you don't cook it, you're gonna get you're gonna have gas. That's why it's called the fartichoke. What's unique about this plant is not only do you have this, this tuber that's really great, the stems and the leaves are also rich in fats, protein, and pectin, and um, it can make good forage and salad for livestock.
1: Okay. So on paper, it sounds like an amazing crop, borderlining on superfoods because it's got a whole bunch of nutrients in there, and you can use all parts of it. So that's pretty cool. And it's a perennial. And it's a perennial.
0: It, it, it is a fairly decent crop, like in the real world. Anyone that that's grown them can tell you like how many calories you can produce with almost no effort. And actually in many parts of North America today, it's considered a weed. But today we're not really here to dive into the plant itself as much as I'd love to. We'll put it on the list. But what's really interesting about today's story is that we're going to hear a tale as old as time. And it's going to just highlight some of the sheer absurdity of the decisions, actions, and I guess reactions that deserve some attention and And, you know, the reason why something that's kind of a silly, goofy, funny story is turning into such a long episode or series of episodes is because everything that should have been cut out is just so funny and ridiculous, it seems wrong to steal all of that from people listening. So I guess in short, be prepared for what's coming because this is like one of the weirdest collections of characters and decisions made that I've ever heard.
1: Yeah, and I'm actually kind of excited for it as well, because you have mentioned a couple of anecdotes from the story, and I thought you were making it up, and I I didn't know that you were prefacing all of this, kind of rolling it into this episode. So I'm excited. I'm excited for it. Sounds like it's going to be good.
0: It's going to be great. Uh, I'm really excited. We should see if we should make a Netflix special. Oh, the Sunchoke. Documentary, yeah. Sunchoke Enron. Senron. God
1: damn it. (laughs) continue with the story. <laughs>
0: okay, so before we can jump into the organization, it's it's really important to talk about the founders, specifically our good good friend Fred Hendrickson, who appeared in the late 1970s as the American farm economy was sagging and the nation was racked by the energy crisis. You know, not at all like 2023. Along with James Dwyer, Hendrickson in 1981 co-founded American Energy Farming Systems or AEFS. Um, a vision that was spearheaded primarily by, like, his dreams to run a nation by sunchoke.
1: Yeah, so it sounds like he literally wanted to stick a tube up your butt to run your car off of the gas you were making off the of eating raw sunchokes.
0: Yeah, I mean, not, not exactly that, but uh, it, it is gas-powered, that's for sure. So approximately, like, half a century before Fred Hendrickson was captured by this Jerusalem artichoke spell, another Fred from the Midwest, oddly enough— Fred Johnson of Hastings, Nebraska, became also infatuated with it, or infartuated with it. I wish you could all see Elliot's dying face right now. Shaking my head so hard, I have a headache. During the Great Depression, uh, Johnson preached the Jerusalem artichoke as the savior of the prairie in crisis. He was, in the words of his biographer, "quote the first Messiah of the Jerusalem artichoke." End quote. Okay, so this makes Fred the second. I don't know, Pat Robertson? Uh, A curious comparison, my friend. Uh, We're actually going to talk about televangelists who got wrapped into this, so don't you worry. Johnson was introduced to the Jerusalem artichoke by professors of agriculture at Iowa State University in the 1920s who had great interest in the plant promise. Johnson concluded that the Jerusalem artichoke was, in the words of his book, the weed worth a million dollars. Johnson centered his life around the plant. He never left his house, without carrying jerusalem artichoke tubers in the pocket of his black suit he would stop people on the street and take out a tuber or two and explain the great healing and restorative powers of the jerusalem artichoke
1: yeah and it's wild it's crazy how not much has changed because i feel like that's still normal that's still a normal thing today
0: that's how we got to be friends as i was like hey check out this potato it's in my pocket right pocket potatoes we were, we were six i don't know pocket potatoes still don't know where you got that from hot pockets
1: <laughs> so this dude's so this dude's just walking down the street and he's hawking his random weed plant that's got like a cure-all for everything
0: yeah it was like the original snake oil. we
1: still have that today
0: yeah now johnson took up the jerusalem artichoke prophecy in the 1930s thinking that the extensive use of alcohol as a fuel was bound to take place within the next five years In the 1920s, a growing alcohol fuel movement called the Power Alcohol Vision took hold during the 1930s as farmers increasingly sought alternative crops to make their fields profitable. This century heralded national energy independence on the one hand, while it immensely magnified the power of war on the other. Don't know if you remember anything else going on in the 1930s.
1: Nope, nothing else happened that was important. Um... Uh, I don't think that's true at all. There's, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, there's a few things happening in the. There's 19-30s. a few huge things happening in the 1930s. Again, the parallels going on right now are just kind of weird, right? It's, yeah, this it, is. It's the but 30s. this is Fred number one. It's so. the 30s again. It is the yeah.
1: 30s again. We're approaching it.
0: We are. Yeah. Now, like I said, we are still talking about Fred the first at this point. Fred the second, who this primary story is, you know, based on, uh, we're gonna get to in a minute. But before that, we're gonna take a little ad break. Go read your funny papers him loves his funny papers.
2: Hey there, it's me, Crazy Norm, down at Normal Norm's Nut Emporium on John Brown Drive. We're going nuts for nuts in Nutty November. We've got big nuts, small nuts, chestnuts, ground nuts, nut butter, buttery nuts, nut milk, milky nuts, nut cream, creamy nuts, and for the late night crowd, chocolate-covered CBD deep-fried nuts. Want to join the nutstravaganza? Nut up and join the nut posse. Join other members and get your sack of nuts pounded for free whenever you come in and make the creamiest nut milk you've ever had in your own kitchen. Crazy Norm's Nut Emporium, 420 John Brown Drive or online at 4Prolls.com.
0: All right, so Johnson took the vision of alcohol fuel production to encapsulate his entire existence. He underlined the Jerusalem artichokes abundant production of levulose, a sugar that according to advocates to be in quote, 50% sweeter than sucrose or ordinary sugar and far better than sucrose for the human system, end quote.
1: Okay. So I'm trying to keep up and I'm doing a terrible job. I have no idea what that means in relation to the alcohol fuel production, but that's cool.
0: Yeah. And that's, uh, that's going to be a common theme for the next, for Fred, the first and the second, the reason why it's worth talking about both of them. Now, Johnson, Fred the First, optimistically uh, was predicting that, and quote, a few months and a few thousand dollars will guarantee the engineering success of the design of a commercial levulose plant, end quote.
1: Okay, so I'm guessing that didn't happen,
0: right? No, and the funny thing about history is that it repeats itself. So our buddy Fred Johnson... Fred the First? Yeah, Fred the first eventually became a congressman in the 1940s and used his public power to push a vision of a fart-filled future. What else happened in the 1940s, Elliot? Uh, the Nuremberg Trials? I mean, yeah, but before that.
1: Uh, Ford supplying the Nazis with equipment.
0: Well, also yes. And actually, Ford is a part of this, as they funded the first Dearborn Conference in the 1930s around finding ways to produce alcohol-powered cars as a means to create energy independence. But anyways, the Second World War sparked an interest for national energy self-sufficiency and led a handful of scientists to again cast some glances at the uh, the old pal on the ground, Jerusalem artichoke. However, two energy crises of the 1970s, the first in 73 and the second in 79, occurred before the plant received another invitation to the great ball of renewable energy.
1: Okay, so I guess we'll call it Schrodinger's fart? <laughs>
0: Love it. Uh, call it whatever you want. It was during the second crisis in 1979 where Fred II a.k.a. Fred Hendrickson, a.k.a. the Forbidden Hendricks Gin, where we uh, see the return of the sunchoke. Fred Hendrickson, who, as we'll see, who was singularly responsible for the creation of AEFS, which ultimately was this small southwestern Minnesota company that spearheaded the sale of Jerusalem artichoke seed starting in 1981.
1: Okay, so all of this is still fueled by humans' need for energy consumption.
0: Yeah, So the energy crisis in 79 was kind of special. Not only did it drive fuel prices to new heights, it also caused the sharpest inflationary rise of the century. Again, no parallels, none at all. The question of energy dominated national concerns. Confidence in nuclear energy had been dashed by the accident at Three Mile Island. The price of oil, which shot up about 24% in the month of June alone, caused double-digit inflation in the United States.
1: Yeah, if you didn't tell me what year it was uh, at the beginning of that statement, I would ask you what year is it.
0: We need to have that clip of you doing the Robin Williams impression to just what stick. What year in there. is it?
1: Yeah, that's good. That one, it's just good.
0: Take it and stick it everywhere. Um, so, <laughs> can and- we isolate that? <laughs> <laughs> we need to. So, anyways, so like like any time of uncertainty, snake oil salesmen come out of the woodwork with solutions, and um. The one we're talking about today, is, I think, fits into that that really interesting model.
1: So are you saying that oil companies didn't buy a patent that made engines suddenly get twice as good or efficient of gas mileage? What do you think? Well, I guess I got scanned on eBay because I spent a lot of money and it doesn't work.
0: <laughs> God, you remember those days when we were younger and like people would tell stories of so-and-so's uncle that knew a guy... Who built some engine that like, or a carburetor that suddenly made their truck get fifty miles a gallon? Yes, I do. It's amazing how those stories like just existed, and everyone heard the same ones. I just wanted to know if it was true or not. We know the answer. I wasted a lot of money, and and none of it's true. No, none of it is. So the future of in this, and getting back to our story here, of um, you know, the nineteen seventy nine national energy situation opened the platform to basically everyone who claimed to have answers. Not all of these people spoke apocalyptically, uh, However, many did convey messages about the collapse of world based on fossil fuels. Okay, so they may have been on something? Yeah, I mean, you know, something about broken clocks, you know, they, they might have been on something. So many people among those whom numbered the founders and early farmers of AEFS, were attracted by energy crops and biomass conversion to methane or ethanol. Like their predecessors in the 1930s with Fred the First. they argued that new crops pointed the way to energy independence and the revitalization of American agriculture.
1: Yeah, so saving American agriculture seems to be a common thread in most of our history episodes. <laughs>
0: yeah, and it's probably... What's, this, be- what's that about? Yeah, what is that about? it's uh it's about the the inverse relationship between surplus production in an unstable monocrop system in order to be prepared if you uh you lose your biggest crop and you know what do you do anyways go tune into our corn episode if you want to hear more about that
1: yeah it was uh corny to say the least it was it was exactly it was exactly that in a good way i mean there's no such thing as a good corny
0: but corny on the cob stop just stop fine the point is small and medium scale farmers during this time in particular were squeezed and the idea of novel new crops during this desperate time made strange bedfellows of all sorts of diverse groups that had interest in dramatic changes in US energy policy the onset of the farm crisis that swept agriculture in the 1980s supported the call for this change things were not good on the farm or so they said High interest rates, low prices for grain, and shaky land values anticipated the farm foreclosures of the middle 1980s. So basically things got bad when you were born. You we were born at the same time, buddy. Yeah, but I have a feeling that this one's on you. It, it might be. I mean, so it goes in my life.
1: You, now, you're literally <laughs> a child
0: of the corn. That's literally I, you. I am. I have it tattooed on my chest. That's why you've never seen me shirtless. You can't see the markings from the corn.
1: It's creepy. I'm going to watch that movie now. (laughs) Malachi was- going to be looking for me in the background? Malachi was a psycho, dude. It was so fun. (laughs) Uh,
0: So the the possibility of new and profitable crops for America's farms was, um, needless to say, a welcome message. It was especially appealing to those that were highly leveraged and economically strained because they found themselves borrowing at exceptionally high interest rates while crop prices remained depressed. And there's a very, very long history of how we got to this point. Don't really have time to get into it. We did dip into it on the corn episode. So again, if you're feeling a little corny, go over there.
1: Okay. So these farm folks, they're they're not stupid people, at least not most of them. And if they know their crops, why would they think that a weed that wasn't valuable is suddenly worth millions just because one person rolled through and said that it would be?
0: So what made the Sunchoke have this moment of hope is the fact that a miracle cash crop did not show up too long before. The great majority of farmers at that point were acquainted with the introduction of the soybean. Uh, Like many things, most of the work around soybeans happened in labs to develop the right plant for their right conditions. And it seemed from the farmer's perspective to just have like dropped in their lap where someone showed up and said, hey, we've got this plant and it was already done. They likely knew nothing of its early genetic development at agricultural stations at the end of the 19th century, its first milling in North Carolina and processing in Chicago during and after the First World War, and its further genetic agronomic processing and marketing history of the 1920s and 30s until it became the object of a single coordinated industry. That was a mouthful. It took 40 years of research, development, and investment to create the soybean they grew. The soybean had saved them as it went from being a significant feed crop in the 1920s and 30s to a major crop in the 1940s and 50s to America's second most valuable crop in the 1960s when it even surpassed wheat, cotton, and hay.
1: Okay, so it sounds like it, you know, it didn't really work out for them in the long term if they're looking for a new one, sort of like
0: a get rich quick like the next get rich quick scheme. It's almost like the system is designed to make farming rely on novel new products in order to not die. I mean, you could
1: call me a heartless communist if you want to, but maybe we shouldn't have a food system that requires constantly new crops to keep farmers from going bankrupt. God damn it, Elliot. Why do you hate freedom? I mostly hate freedom for the reasons and this scheduled and coordinated ad
0: break. Can't wait to hear.
2: Howdy there, fellow preppers, I'm Billy Dane, here to tell you about the latest in apocalypse preparedness, truly an all-in-one solution, Bullets and Beans by Bunker Corp. Our scientists here at Bunker Corp have developed a proprietary blend of pinto bean and 45 caliber ACP rounds canned together in a savory, non-corrosive sauce for your consumption and reliable combustion. When shit hits the fan, then ho-ho-ho, you know it will you're down your dark bunker long after your fuel sources run out and your batteries have died bullets and beans will be there to provide you with a hearty meal best eating cold simply open the can carefully scoop out a mouthful and spit out the premium centerfire rounds within a few bites you've got a full magazine and a full stomach so remember folks it's bullets and beans for your all-in-one solution to nutrition and self-defense. Make sure it's part of your last days on Earth, and don't forget to leave one round in the bottom of the can.
1: (laughs) Is this a a recruiter act? What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Oh, yeah. So the time was ripe for the hopes of a new crop, and Fred Hendrickson and the founders of AFS were among the boldest of those who envisioned a new saving plant for America's fields. In the spirit of the hour, they preached to farm audiences easily assembled during the energy and farm crises of the late 1970s and the early 80s of the Jerusalem artichoke, long known to farmers as a weed, and it explained how it offered the promise of wealth and independence. Exploiting the evangelical religious sensibility of the time, the founders of AAFS prophesized that the Jerusalem Artichoke was a, in quote, providential plant, end quote. A couple other ways they explained it, in quote, a biblical plant of promise, in quote, the plant of renown that Ezekiel prophesized," in quote, God would raise up to feed and save his people, end quote. So that sounds like a really big stretch. Yeah, I mean, they may yeah. as well be doing yoga, you know? Yogis. Yeah, like a yoga instructor. AFS initially promoted the Jerusalem artichoke as a new and superior source of alcohol fuel. Its representatives boasted the distillation of alcohol fuel from the tubers of the Jerusalem artichoke as the road to farm prosperity and American independence from greedy cartels and foreign nations.
1: Ah, yes. Nationalism wrapped in a plant.
0: In a plant that they stole from indigenous people. Now, as oil and gas prices declined sharply, problems surrounded the distillation and the industrial conversion of Jerusalem artichokes into alcohol, AEFS quickly preached other virtues of the Jerusalem artichoke. The advertisements that they made increasingly drew attention to the promise of the Jerusalem artichoke as a source of sucrose and insulin, a substitute for starch and sugar, making it especially useful to diabetics. AEFS also suggested a possible use for Jerusalem artichokes as human food and animal feed. Beyond this, AEFS sold something else. It sold hope, and desperate farmers and greedy speculators bought into it.
1: Ah, uh, yes, the audacity of hope.
0: Yeah, the audacity of hope. So, one of the things that's really interesting about Sunchoke is that while AFS did not, in the legal sense, as at least as defined by Minnesota statutes, create a pyramid sales scheme, since they sold something—that is, the the seeds—the the driving mechanism of its sales was pyramid-like.
1: So it was like, how could I say it? I guess like a hemisphere scheme, same general idea, but technically not the same.
0: Yeah, let's go with that. Their first year growers, which are also called their third year growers, because we'll explain that, uh, intended to sell their seed to their second and third year growers, while second year growers, that is their two year growers, intended to sell their seed to third year growers who would still enjoy the phenomenal advantage of getting in on the quote unquote ground floor of a new American crop.
1: That's so weird. Like one of my first jobs at a college was to sell insurance that exact same way, life insurance,
0: buddy, you, you need to stop talking and buying things from people on the internet. It's not going well for you. Listen, I only buy things off the street. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 While our, our buddy Fred, the second here in the gang expect things to go well. They didn't just go well. They Their sales exceeded its founders' like wildest dreams. The planets were lined up for the Jerusalem artichoke and AEFS. Circumstance conspired with need and myth to create an unprecedented national horticultural hysteria.
1: I think that's the only time I've ever heard those words strung together in a sentence.
0: Yeah, good. Now,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Now let's talk- Horticultural hysteria.
0: Horticultural hysteria, it should be like something that's in the news weekly, first off, just for the record.
1: I mean, I'm just picturing like a Purge movie that takes place in a greenhouse.
0: I am picturing like, I don't know, this, the New York Times, like with a, a hot take on strawberry plants and like fungicide or something. The world we live in. The world we deserve, first off. That's true. Now, let's talk about our buddy Fred, who, Fred the Second, to be clear. We won't be talking about Fred the First anymore. We we just had to cover that like he was not the original Fred to talk about this, which is a weird coincidence. Is, and as we'll find out, there's just a lot of weird, weird shit that happens in the story. It's like, shit. You, you think someone would have made this up because it, it sounds that insane. And that, that's the first one, that it was a pair of Freds that became obsessed with Sunchokes. I know Fred used to be a popular name, but still weird.
1: Did they go by Fred or was it like were they the kind of people where it's like my name is Frederick?
0: No, they were they were Freds. Not Freddy. Not Fredo. Not Frodo. Is Frodo a nickname for Fred? Could it be? I don't know, man. I don't know any hobbits. <laughs> okay. Um so yeah, let's talk about Fred the second here. Our our boy, the king kingpin of AEFS. Fred was basically like a boring average dude who just could not keep a job because he was like overwhelmingly focused on, like, super big ideas that floated in the world around him. So, like, in 1972, he was on his second marriage and his, like, nth job. He decided he was going to, like, go through this extremist's religious conversion. On April 2nd of 72, he believed he came to know Christ. Hendrickson reformed his life at this point. He gave up drinking and smoking and refounded his marriage in Christ conversion further intensified Hendrickson's sense of being elected. The Jesus kind of way of being elected, like, God has chosen me, not, like, people want to elect me. And um, this Moses-like belief that he was, like, there to be this, like, patron saint walking among men kind of colored all of his thoughts and relationships.
1: Yeah, so that's totally normal cis white male behavior.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that's fair. Uh, so... Uh, While he was actually adopted by his parents as an infant, again, Moses, he now believed himself to be adopted by God as an adult. (laughs) Jesus Christ, uh, again. Yeah, he thought he was in this way, really. Now, Hendrickson, as a prophet, believed he would help complete God's covenant with America. Hendrickson never wavered in his belief that America was the new Israel, and he alone was one of its primary prophets.
1: Oh, that's brilliant. That's gonna be the name for my first uh non profit. It's gonna be Profits for Profits.
0: <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that sounds so fun. Yeah. We're here. To, like your mission statement needs to be like we are here to launder money for you. Like we are we, we are unabashed and that is what we are doing. Yes. <laughs> what could go wrong? It'd be beautiful. Like it would just be so like especially if Trump is president again, like Like the IRS will be like, we have to accept it. Like our president would accept it.
1: Yeah. He's going to be my first customer. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there.
0: So Hendrickson's God spoke directly to his people, promising to heal them and to return them to his kingdom. His God was intent on restoring America's rural people. They were the object of his covenant. Now, Hendrickson, much like many Midwestern religious leaders at the time, believed the time of Christ's second coming was at hand. Again, this could be 2020. Hendrickson uh, remained in Rapid City for the next nine years. There, he practiced law and sold real estate, doing a lot of legal work for marginal farmers, Native Americans, and the poor. On the surface, it appeared Hendrickson had found the stability he had craved. His marriage held. His belief in God was unfaltering. He was filled with enthusiasm.
1: Yeah, and I'm just looking looking overhead right now, and I just feel like this is where the dark clouds start to roll in. There's There's got to be something bad's going to happen,
0: like, soon. Oh, you know it. You know it. It's so, so, so bad. It's palpable. It's palpable. The clouds, like, the our studio is just getting darker as we're talking about this. So Hendrickson remained spiritually restless throughout this time. He continued to believe this work was all, like, important for him to, like, prove himself, but not, like... His mission, it was just like side quest to use the gamer term. He believed there was still like this unique mission that was in store for him. At a Pentecostal meeting in the Twin Cities in August of 1973, he interpreted a burning sensation in his palms as a sign of God's special calling.
1: Yeah, that's metal as shit. Burning palms and screaming psalms. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah.
0: In December of the same year, after reading the Bible, he awoke from a nap and experienced a burning sensation in his palms again. On this occasion, Hendrickson believed God was speaking directly to him, and this is from uh, his actual quote, I am your God, you are to be my spokesman to my people, a prophet for this day and age, end quote.
1: So delusions of grandeur are taking hold. Maybe this is some sort of schizophrenia or whatever, but if it's from the Bible, it's cool and acceptable. That's totally fine. It's all good things. It's totally fine. All good things. What What could really go wrong with the power of Christ?
0: With the power of Christ checks... Nothing can go wrong. In, 19, in 1978, uh, Hendrickson focused on a, a new idea to make a dollar to serve God and, of course, to serve the nation. He turned his restless energy and attention to the field of alternative energy and, more specifically, the on-farm alcohol fuel industry. First thing you would pick, right? Obviously. Now, his first project, which existed only on paper, was a design for a company that would grow vegetables utilizing geothermal energy. In his hyper obsession, Hendrickson devoured all the information on alternative energy he could get his hands on. He even confessed to having become, in quote, a great reader of Mother Earth News, end quote, where he encountered for the first time what he took to be the revolutionary notion that renewable fuel could save both the nation and its farmers. Can you take a guess at what that was, my friend? Uh, it wasn't soybeans. No, it was not. It certainly was not. At this point, he started to advertise himself as an agribusiness concept developer specializing in alcohol, wind, solar, and thermal energy and agribusiness development. That was his title, Elliot. Like, he was like, yeah, I do this because I read some books. I read Mother Earth News. See, you didn't even have to go to college. He was a lawyer, he could go to college. Like he was clearly like no, you intelligent. Didn't
1: have to. You just have to put words on a card and then you do that now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> God, the seventies and eighties is just fucking wild. You could just call yourself whatever you want. There's no accountability. No one could look you up and see whether or not you're talking out of your ass. Like he he can conf- like I love the fact that he describes the fact that he read Mother Earth News as like he confessed to it, like he was committing this like mortal sin even though it's like i'm gonna go dedicate my life to this this plan yeah listen he cited it so it's not like he made it up shit's real yeah if someone else said it then like you've cited it it's done fact fact <laughs> <laughs> so during 1980 he quickly left his stable work you know working with poor people and indigenous people and trying to help them like solve some of their problems and uh, he occupied himself instead with a wide variety of startups aimed at the development of an alcohol cooperative and the construction of alcohol plants. One particular project was on a site in South Dakota called Igloo. At the Igloo site of a former U.S. Army ammunition dump in western South Dakota, Hendrickson conjured an ecological vision of a totally self-sufficient farming system. <laughs> so one man's trash is like another man's...
1: Trash, I guess. What the, hell? <laughs> yeah. what the hell? Yeah, kind
0: of something like that. Now, basically, it resembled a biological counterpart to one of those perpetual motion machines. The waste from grazing cattle would produce methane. Steam generated energy would be used to make alcohol. Aquaculture, fish farming, tree farming, biomass crops, including like amaranth and fodder beets, all had place on the farm.
1: Okay, so this dude invented like the modern cult homesteading, like do it all by my book.
0: Yeah, basically, it's like if you took every homesteader and you said, like, if you had infinite time and money, what would you do? It'd be like this. They'd, like, have a closed-loop system because it's, like, ultimately, like, individualistic, like, and self-perpetuating. And that's what he wanted to do. Now, with Hendrickson, though, he never really thought small, like, for me. For example, when he was creating this vision, he actually took a protractor. He circled on a state road map the Tilbo land in South Dakota as if to claim it for his own by virtue of his unique vision for it. Hendrickson credited the state with 66 counties, 77,000 square miles of land, and 50,000 farms, averaging 920 acres each. Of these, he had a plan for 27.5 million acres and more than 200,000 people. I'm not going to bother going into further detail. It's obviously like fucking lunacy, and to no one's surprise, he wasn't able to get a loan to buy out 27 counties.
1: Okay, I'm not sure if it's insane or if it's literally just like, the way things were but he really walked into a bank to get a loan to start an organization that has 50,000 farms when you've never farmed anything you just read mother earth's digest or whatever
0: <laughs> big white man energy yeah that shit's <laughs> crazy dude that's <laughs> nuts <laughs> right <laughs> like that is that is beyond basic that's like beyond trump energy right there that is that's a lot there's just so much and we're just scratching the surface here so yeah, we're going to be in this, this is just part one. We've just, like I said, scratched the surface on this. We're going to be talking about Fred the Second, televangelists, terrible businessmen, fake scientists, and so, so much more in the following episodes. So hopefully you guys have listened and uh, you're excited to hear more because this is a fun one.
1: Yeah, I think this is really funny. We haven't even gotten into like the founding of the company yet and like all of that stuff. So it does get really good. But at the same time, I'm sitting here making fun of this dude because he's just like, he he wrote on a business card. This is my like business title. And we've done the same thing by starting a podcast.
0: <laughs> why well, Are you calling me Fred the second, Fred the third? Sure. Can I be like Fred Durst? Can I be third?
1: Fred the fourth? Because f- I like four as a number. It's cool.
0: It's a good number. I'll give you that. All right, you're Fred 3, I'm Fred 4. All right.